big collisions. Yeah, it's a lot of them. <laughs> it's a lot of them. Yeah. Well, there's a good reason for it. Winter can be really depressing. That that's real. I I think whatever else is going on, just stacking up a bunch of ways to feel good with the people that you care about, and to have some regular check-in time with them is probably a good idea. Yeah, and a collective expectation that we're not going to work. I mean, unless you're in retail, of course, unless you're in, you know, a field where it, you know, medicine or something where your 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 place of work never shuts down, you work at a power plant, something like that, in which case we hope you're making double time. Correct. <laughs> but but there there I mean we we talk about work and there is an interesting double tiered situation where there's a a lucky set of us who gets to wind down mm -hmm. in December and another set who has to just keep working through December like any other time of the year. Uh, so please, if you are among the lucky set, please be good to those who are working right now mm -hmm. and uh, please accommodate them as much as you can and don't be an asshole should and go without saying it <laughs> should go without saying tip well yes tip um, well remember to smile look people in the eye when you're doing a transaction you know little things like that and this and this goes at all times of year but oh, especially sure. now when there is just so much traffic going through a lot of these places don't add to people's burdens now you've worked retail correct oh yes yeah i i think that i don't did you Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I actually really loved two of my retail jobs. One, I worked at Rasputin's Records here in the Bay Area, for those of you oh, who wow. know. Oh, wow. I've the... seen that a bunch of times. I had no idea you had a connection to that. <laughs> oh, it was, it, that, I loved that job so much. That was back when I thought I was going to be, well, I was just all about music all the time. And also at the Body Shop, back before it was acquired, when Anita Roddick was still at the, at the helm. I loved that job because I loved the product. I loved the product we sold. Um, and it's the best feeling when you can sell something you believe in. Love it. Both times. Rasputin and, and uh, Body Shop. I also worked in a grocery store. So, you know, it was more like uh, you can believe in the product or not. You got to eat. I did, too. You did? You worked at a grocery store? I worked at uh, my very first job was at a Publix in Florida. <laughs> Damn. There you go. I worked in several grocery stores. I was one of those um, people who came and set up displays for a, a specific company oh like, yeah like the end caps of yeah, like yeah, yeah. you know special displays and so my friend and i would go all over the bay area and beyond and we'd have to be there at like six in the morning i think everybody should have to at least at one point know what it's like to work retail at the holidays to wait Service. tables to yep. yeah i just like you don't it's so hard to explain if you haven't done it it's so hard to explain how critical those jobs are and how, you... how how difficult like oh, it, it's so a hard. really difficult thankless job and people are just chewing you up and chewing you out without really giving it a second thought and and, and so yeah i'm i'm completely with you like that the empathy for the difficulty of those kinds of roles is really important yeah. uh, and it's it's empathy that i wish more folks had I, there are some people in my life with whom I will not go to restaurants anymore because they're that bad. Yeah. You know, where I just go, you know, I either I have to work with you still or you're in my life for one reason or another and I can't really choose to not have you in my life. 
So I don't want to go out into the world with you and see you, how you, you just treat. need to look the other way around a particular aspect of, of yeah. how they and I've participate tried to, in humanity. Right. And I've tried to say it. I've tried to model it. And I'm like, OK, well, I just can't trust you. And I don't want to be associated with you when I'm out in the world and you're being an asshole to a waiter. Like, that's Reasonable. just not OK. So anyway, tip your wait staff, everybody. Be good. <laughs> Happy holidays. <laughs> So we had a, a fairly historic moment last night. The The politics of it, I don't really want to bother with because, for one thing, we're through the looking glass. Who knows how any of this actually works anymore? I also think you can get really good political analysis from people who are closer to it than, than we are. Absolutely. Yeah. Let, let, let the other folks fill you in on, on, on what the, the mechanisms are here. but. What I wanted to talk about was some of us completely saw this guy coming mm -hmm. and a lot of us didn't. Mm. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a little sore about it still. So back in 2015, when dipshit comes down the escalator and he's paid actors to be in this room and, and clap for him and all of this. And he says that Mexicans are not sending their best, but instead sending rapists and, and all. When he says Mexicans, he doesn't even mean actually people from Mexico. He just means all immigrants from Central America, right? Well, yeah. Well, and also the people he counts from Puerto Rico, no doubt. Yeah, for real. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, the, the whole thing, he just, he started off with this really racist scapegoating of brown people. And a lot of us knew at the time that this was dangerous. We knew that this was feeding an appetite. And we knew that people were craving this kind of rhetoric. And we got dismissed by white people because they saw him as a joke. For those of us who are a bit older, we never forgot that he was the guy who took out a full page ad in the New York Times. The Central the, Park Five. That's right. We were, and I was, you know, I forget how old I was, a teenager, 20, in my 20s. And that for me was actually the first time I, I really heard of him or knew that he was like a character in this, this racist landscape. And, and, you know, pre-internet, remember that it was much harder to get deeper information about somebody just as a, as a bystander, right? You'd literally have to go to the library and be like, I'm going to research this guy. Who is he? Well, as we learn about him over time, it turns out he is the son of a slumlord. He has also, you know, he, the rest of his family have implemented all of these racist housing housing policies and procedures he you know like the, the list goes on his and on his father was a, a white supremacist his father was a white up, supremacist a, a participating community member that's of right. white supremacy that's right and had a big hand in redlining if you all like younger folks are like i don't like the way this smells we were like oh do i have a story for you <laughs> and i think the thing that was so infuriating is what you said is that there were there were lots of us who were like, we actually have good reason to fear this person. Not just, I don't like him. I don't like the Miss America pageant. I don't like Trump's steaks or, you know, whatever the hell he was hawking at the, at the time. It was he's like- He's dangerous. He's dangerous. And uh, back when the Simpsons predicted, you know, you know, tongue in cheek that he would become president, 
there there's always been this through line of like okay if we hit that we we know that we are um we are a Fox. country yeah well, well yeah we're we're absolutely a country in decline and here we are and 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 here he is and now folks are like wow turns out this guy is really dangerous or in the last like let's say 6 months we're like have you not looked at the border have you like, have you not looked at at what he's cutting in the budget have you not looked at the judges he's pushing through the system why now and and it's been fascinating and infuriating to me to watch people hit their breaking points and go oh that was it like oh okay well, and and we got a bunch of data recently that showed how representation in major media organizations is so fucking busted you've got mm -hmm. these newsrooms filled with you know majority white people 70 to 90 percent in, in even in even in newsrooms where the communities they serve are predominantly people of color 70 to 90 percent outrageous well and and at this point the country has a lot of people of color in it and so anyone <laughs> speaking to a national audience really should have better representation than these numbers are suggesting and so I just look back and I feel like there's so much of the pain that could have been prevented here if we had just had more representation in, in the newsrooms. And, and this is hardly an original thought. Our, our friend Carla Montaroso of Code 2040 is frequently beating the drum that we don't have correct representation in our major media outlets right now in most of our outlets of, of power generally and so this is coming during a time of demographic shift and the mismatch between the demographic shift and how our uh, organizations of power are set up is leading us to these calamities these mm -hmm. things could have been prevented mm -hmm. with different people well i think it gets back to the central thesis of the work that we do which is when you when you shine a light on the voices that have historically been marginalized, you get a lot of really good, important information. That and problem identification. That problem, diverse teams, number one benefit, problem identification. Again, not problem solving, because once you know you have a problem, lots of smart people can take a shot at, at fixing it, right? At addressing it. You don't always get it right, but it's 100% of the problems you don't know you have that kick you in the ass later on. It, it's and the one that sneaks up on your blind spot and dings you right in the side of the head. That's right. So yesterday during the impeachment, uh, um, first the debate and, and then the vote, the two speeches that really moved me were John Lewis and, and Maxine Waters. And Maxine Waters has been calling this from the beginning. You go was all ridiculed. the way back. Right. It's like, oh, Maxine Waters, she don't know what she's talking about. She's she's an alarmist. But in 2017, she was talking about this guy needs to be impeached. And she was speaking for a lot of us who understood from jump that this was a corrupt motherfucker who needed to go and who had no legitimacy in this role. I think what we'll find and what I think some people are already un uncovering is that this is a person who never really wanted to be president. He wanted a tower in Moscow. That's right. what he wanted. And this was the vehicle he used. And through nefarious means, um, some that were perfectly legal, like rallying a base that, that was full of hatred for people other than themselves, and things that were we now know were very illegal and under the surface, um, 
you know, has, has highlighted the worst of us, our worst impulses. It's and a producer's scam. It's a producer's scam, right? now. And so now he's like, oh my gosh, I have to be president full time. This man has clearly never read the Declaration of Independence, let alone the Constitution. He hasn't not read the full length of a fortune cookie. He doesn't not, have the attention span for it. Not appreciating the fact that we have been trying, we, this country, has been trying to build on a very delicate, on very delicate ground that is still soaked in blood, a democracy that can truly represent everybody. And I'm a democracy nerd. I, I, I just, I, I, I'm, I'm unabashed. I have been my, my, much of my life. I see its downfalls. I see where we've gone horribly wrong as a country. I see that in our DNA, you know, we are fundamentally standing on stolen land and the blood of enslaved people as well as, as those of indigenous people who are here. All of that is true, and yet I still believe in the American experiment. And, and maybe that's my age coming through or, or, or something, but I'm, I'm an idealist. And to watch anybody ridicule the office that is supposed to represent everybody, the us and them statements, the these people you know, do this, that, and the other, these people are not sending, you know, these countries are not sending their best the rhetorical uh, violence. The rhetorical violence. And so as we are steeped in tech in particular, this is, this is something you and I talk about a lot, which is the, the line of, of hate speech and violence via social media has moved, uh, has moved over the years and in my mind has become much clearer, not, not, not more gray. And the technologies that, that we've built to amplify voices, that as a premise, I'm behind. What we didn't do, what the jacks of the world didn't do was say, how can we build a tool that highlights the best of us and our aspirations of, of what we want to be as a civil society? I think that, you know, you know who I miss? Mm. And, and some people aren't going to know the story, but I miss my friend, Adria Richards. Yeah. Gone, gone from tech, gone from tech as one of the first black women in particular, one of the first people who really um, suffered the wrath of violent hate speech, the, the reach this of violence. This was before Gamergate. Right, right. All the Gamergate stuff, all of the targeting employers, that was all tested out on Adria Richards and SendGrid, her employer, cowardly rolled That's the right. fuck over yep. and left her twisting in the wind. And now Adria's not in the game with us anymore. Not, not only is Adria not in the game, but as somebody who was her friend, who became her friend after that, as some, I you know, reached out to support her. I worked with her on a few projects after that. This is a person who went into hiding. We're not, even, we're not even talking about she's like, eh, you know what, I'm going to go become a teacher now or I'm going to just change my profession. Went into hiding because she was swatted. She was doxxed beyond, you know, she had to, she was one of the people who had to explain what swatting and doxing was to people because they didn't know. They didn't believe that social media could lead to something like this. Deep fake videos of her that were that were deep fake porn with her face on it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it it. it 
the the question of well what should we monitor and what should we I, i'm tired of it what i want is for people who are designing software platforms and specifically those who are in charge of our social media to say how do we how do we promote the best of what we are how do we promote the best of what we are not simply enable the worst of what we are well i've got good news um jack <laughs> is going to africa oh jesus and and he's going to to spend a few months in Africa. Where in Africa he does not specify. Well, Mike, uh, I have a guess. It's a very big continent. I have a uh, guess. Where do you, where do you think he's going? <laughs> I think he's going to Nigeria, the tech capital of Africa, and he's gonna. I'm I'm I don't oh, know. I don't know the man. I am worried. I am concerned that he is going to export a specific type of uh, software development that has not served this hemisphere well um and as he goes well whichever most of the world that uses it has not served us all that well when it comes to violent rhetoric and hate speech and as somebody who's going to be revered when he gets there for his status as the head of, of twitter too many pe folks are going to fall for his shit and i know lots of people who are part of that strong ecosystem tech ecosystem on the continent specifically revolving around nigeria lagos in particular who i know will be fighting the good fight against whatever jack is exporting and well, i i don't think jack is so much exporting as he, my cynical view is that he's very likely going there for labor exploitation purposes there's that too i mean yes because i think he there's a there is so much talent there's so much technical talent on that continent, right? And he can get away with not paying them Silicon Valley rates, and he would love that, I'm certain. Lord, please let us watch this closely, because <laughs> just because of all the things we know, of all the things we know when white American man goes and says, I'm going to go there and I'm going to, it doesn't matter what, what comes out next. I'm going to find myself. I'm going to. <laughs> Sorry, I'm feeling particularly cynical about this this morning. I don't blame you one bit. Look, <laughs> you're allowed to be idealistic about optimized systems and cynical about bad actors within them. Can I tell you a story about how I almost lost my first job out of college <laughs> over this? Please. <laughs> All right, so I'm really grateful for the first job I got out of college. I won't name the organization because it doesn't matter. Um, you know, you, you can get on my LinkedIn and see, it's fine. Uh, but I was in Boston and this organization was very much about um, community service, democracy building, building civil society, good citizenship, you know, the citizenship we care about, not citizenship as in legal papers, citizenship as in being part of an interdependent community and what that looks like. And I loved it, it was, a, it was the first place I learned about how you can manage diverse teams to have better outcomes, it was amazing. And I was asked to give a talk in front of the whole staff. At this point, it was probably, I don't know, several hundred, 500, 600, I don't know, staff at our, at our big national staff retreat. And they said, you know, you're new. We'd love to hear something that you really care about that really moves you um, as we do this work. And I was like, sure. So I got, <laughs> I'm 21 years old and I got up and we talked a lot about idealism versus cynicism. Those were the, that was the, the big, um, that was the big divide in this organization was we can be idealists or we can be cynics. And uh, so I get up and I give a talk and I'm very earnest. Okay, it's 1994. 
I'm, you know, again, internet is not ubiquitous. Um, and I stand up and I give a talk about how I want to be an idealist, how I am an idealist and I aspire to be one. And I love the United States of America. And we can't forget that folks we revere, like Thomas Jefferson, also enslaved humans, ostensibly raped them, ostensibly, you know, whatever. Violence. Violence, violence. And so if we aren't looking at the whole picture of our own history, we are doomed. This is not a controversial statement, right? I, I shouldn't think so. Well, right. Apparently, and I didn't know it, there was a professor of U.S. history from Harvard in the back of the room who was sort of like, um, I seems like an advisor to the organization. And I didn't, I missed the whole thing. He went flying up to the leaders of the organization, the two founders, and he said, you pull her off that stage right now. She needs to be fired. We cannot have that kind of rhetoric in this organization. She is not a, guess what he said? Culture fit, food, food, food. <laughs> Now, I didn't find out till uh, probably like, I don't know, three or four months later that the senior most black man on the leadership team, who was the person who had recruited me, intervened and basically said over, over my dead body. We, we wow. can't, yeah. And, you know, thank God for him. And, and he, he is the, he's honestly the closest thing I've had to a mentor in my life, in my professional life. And he, uh, he said, are you kidding me? What she's saying is what people of color have been talking about forever and y'all can't handle this. And they, all those folks were white, the founders and the shocker and the professor. He goes, you don't understand. This is the conversation. This is the conversation. If we're going to have diversity, we've got to be able to absorb conversations like this and thank God for him. Um, and it was apparently I made a name for myself in this organization for good or not about being cynical that I was a cynic because what I wanted to also talk about was the reality, the reality. And, and Thomas Jefferson, if you've ever been to the Jefferson Memorial in DC, there's this quote around the inside of the rotunda that goes, I have sworn upon the altar of God, all forms of tyranny over the mind of man. I love that quote. I, I love that quote so much. And, and I started with it and people were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I was like, and still, Right. <laughs> he right. made these choices. And I think what is very gratifying to me about as much as I as I will trash social media, the 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 thing that's very gratifying to me about this is that we are finally having these conversations en masse. But now we've got this moment of national consciousness raising. Yes. And yes. I think that whatever the terrifying aspects of right-wing hatred that have definitely risen in a social media petri dish the flip side of that the other side of that coin is that there is a level of consensus and consciousness raising that has happened alongside that that really has no uh, historical precedent in terms of the depth of the conversations that are happening in terms of the speed at which consensus is being reached. Uh, this kind of thing can only happen in a social media perspective where the feedback loops are so short and where there are no gatekeepers. Mm -hmm. And you've got a lot of people, I, I think, frankly, of the boomer generation 
who are rolling their eyes at, quote, woke Twitter. Mm -hmm. And I think a big part of the eye rolling comes from a discomfort in that there is a whole new cultural movement happening. And a lot of these folks have no idea how to participate mm -hmm. or how to make sense of it, even from the outside. Mm -hmm. and, and and that's just, that, that's a big part of the, the mess we're in yeah. and, and kind of a, a, a solid way to end my initial rant on <laughs> we all told you and you didn't listen <laughs> that fucking trump was a problem he's a bad dude he's that's a right bad dude <laughs> we could have spared you a lot of trouble saved you a lot of time all you had to do was listen but i guess you had to get there on your own about it. let's talk about tv <laughs> with my watchman with my watchmen drop in there yeah that, that, that's a good TV. segue but, but let's start with Succession because Succession was a thing Ooh. I was really excited for you to get some time to watch. And mm -hmm. recently you spent some time watching it. Yeah. Tell, tell us like your 30-second uh, synopsis of what Succession is and why it's interesting. Oh, 30 seconds. Uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. It is the story of a family that is motivated by the patriarch who is sort of this Rupert Murdoch character. And all I can say, if you haven't seen it, is nobody is safe, not even in your own family. And uh, you will get you will you will get cut in the middle of the night if you are not on board for for dad's aspirations and, and empire building. How's that for 30 seconds? That's, that's solid. Okay, thanks. My excitement with Succession is rooted in how timely it is as media. Mm -hmm. Because when I when I first sat down to watch it, I didn't really have a lot of expectations for it. Um, but I I turned to my partner who was watching it with me, and I and I said to her, "This is the best use of an all white cast." <laughs> I have ever seen it. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's a right? really good point. Like the, this show has virtually no diversity. And in that it is making a point that is important and is therefore relevant to all populations, regardless of, of their identities. What I think is really timely about this show is that it's about wealth inequality. Mm -hmm. And we have so many stories of what it is to not have money what we don't get to see and what we don't have a lot of story material around is what it is to actually have money and what it is that people with money what does the money do to them and succession is this really unsparing look at that and how these are human beings with normal human frailties and the problem is that all of those human frailties are attached to massively long, powerful levers mm. that give them disproportionate influence and control in people's lives, in people's media, in the government. This stuff is happening to us all the time, and we haven't had stories to help us make sense of it. And I think Succession does an amazing job of making some sense of that for us. I think that's a, a great way of putting it. And the other thing that it make, that made me think of, there were times when I had to turn it off because 
for those of us who have had proximity to wealth of that magnitude, for example, here in Silicon Valley or, you know, whatever industry you're in, if you've climbed the ladder at all, <laughs> uh, you, or, I mean, I guess there's, I, there might be people who, who were raised with this level of wealth who, who listen to us. Somehow, I doubt it, but I'd love to hear from you. <laughs> <laughs> Please reach out if... But seriously, like, what did you think? Did, did your family do shit like this? Like, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an anthropological curiosity to me, but sometimes I had to turn it off because what you said about the frailties that humans all have on this backdrop we take the, these human frailties and we turn them into quirky, kooky stories about like the mad founder or the, you know, the, the wealthy genius or, or whatever it is. And what we, we don't talk about nearly enough, we sort of chalk it up to like, oh, they're, they're, they're eccentric, is that the bad parts of all of us and the bad parts of extremely powerful and wealthy people are magnified, you know, I don't even know how to, how to quantify it, but are so magnified when at the end of that stick, there's just billions of dollars to bash people over the heads with. And so something that may be a peculiarity or a, a peccadillo when you're, when you're nobody become, have huge, a huge wake and the ramifications of, of, of an oddity because you have this enormous wealth and therefore this enormous shadow and and this enormous power people this is how people get hurt inside systems and That's so right. the way this plays out in silicon valley is we're like so and so yeah he might be an evil genius i'm like why are you all paying attention to the genius part of that story instead of the evil part of that story That's right. you know it's like well he's just a very odd we just have to we have to accommodate his peculiarities because that's how he works best. And I'm like, well, and, and the peculiarities because of the wealth get distorted into this virtue. Right. When, when it's like, no, you're, you're just an asshole and you could achieve similar results without being an asshole. It's just that your wealth insulates you from ever having to do the introspection to correct your being an asshole. Okay. But what if you have to be an asshole to achieve that level of wealth? Well, it, it, it's a very interesting question, right? The What is the level of suspended empathy necessary to amass wealth? Uh, it, it's a question I ponder all the time. Well, when we've talked about workplace trauma in the past, for me, I realize that at the root of some of that workplace trauma, a lot of the workplace trauma is that question, yeah. is am I going into a system where there is so much money at, at stake for people, especially for those who already have it, right? And it's a scoreboard to them. It's not, it's not real. You can't spend as much money as some of these people have in a in, in 100 lifetimes. You can't spend this much money. And you certainly don't need it, but it's a scoreboard, right? There's a Midas list, there's a whatever. It's a sense of self-worth bound up in this number. That's right. And, it, and, it, and that in and of itself is already a huge problem because for the rest of us normal folk, we're told don't compare yourself to, don't compare your success to others. Um, you know, do what is right. Do what your conscience tells you. And yet we're in a system where the opposite gets literally rewarded in the way of money. And 
I realized that a ton of my workplace trauma has that at the root, that there is a, always, in my experience, a cadre of people surrounding those with enormous wealth who are willing to say yes to absolutely anything and everything. So that they can get a slice of that wealth That's no matter right. who it hurts. That's right. Just for, just, just for proximity, a slice, the promise of a slice, the, the hope that one day they'll sprinkle some of that on you and the things that people are willing to do in the name of that access and in the name of that proximity are abhorrent. And I'm only talking about tech. I mean, I, I, I don't have any industry. Yeah. I don't have deep, deep roots in media or in Wall Street or in, you know, advertising. I'm sure it's the same thing. Well, it, look at Fox. I mean, Fox mm -hmm. was this situation where brief media history lesson here with this. Once upon a time, cable could not reach rural areas. Mm -hmm. And so the media that reached rural America was AM radio because AM radio can travel over extraordinary distances. And so you could reach people by only doing a simple investment in this one radio transmitter. And so the king of this was Rush Limbaugh. And Rush Limbaugh nurtured right-wing grievance after the loss of right-wing supremacy in politics. You had Reagan, you had Bush, and then it's over, and everyone's furious about the end of their identity politics being represented in the White House. And so all of this Clinton grievance-mongering that Rush Limbaugh did sets up an audience which craves to have this alternate reality delivered to them. And so by the end of the 90s, you've got satellite television, and you've got the penetration of uh, cable into more and more rural areas. And so suddenly Rush Limbaugh could serve up this entire audience of people ready to have an alternate reality delivered to them by Fox News. Fox News advertised heavily with Rush Limbaugh. Every single commercial break, he was letting people know about Fox News and their fair and balanced take on reality. And so what happens is that there was money to be made selling an alternate reality, first by Rush, later by Fox and News Corporation. And we have turned this country into a cold civil war ground because someone wanted to make cash from political division. Follow the money. I mean, it's very rarely about ideology. And that's what's hard is that I, f I feel like there are a lot of us who want to be moved by ideology, want to move other people by ideology, by aspirations of what we could be as a, as a country, as a community, as an industry, what we could be. And that's not, it's not speaking, it doesn't speak the same language as what other folks are doing um, to undo or to, to do the damage that, that, that money and, and the absolute pursuit of it will do to the psyche, to families, to communities, to, and, and that ultimately, I mean, getting back to succession, that's what it's about. It is a family that is manipulating media for their gain and the, the quandaries they get into via their personal relationships because they know they're into something smarmy. It's, it's the bad guy's story. None of these people are good guys. Not a single one. And, and that's always fun to watch, I gotta say. But it, but it's one of those things where afterwards you have to reflect and go, this is kind of documentary, isn't it? 
this is kind of like a real story. This is a biopic of, of what's going on in, in media right now, isn't it? And um, I just I really recommend it. The acting is phenomenal. The character the, development. The whole cast is just exceptional and they're perfect at delivering the writing which is being made for them it's some of the best tv i've ever seen in my life and i have a hard time thinking of anything that transcends it in terms of its relevance well that's because you haven't watched the watchmen i know yo <laughs> i'm so behind i know you're in trouble the first for episode it i was really impressed and the violence of it, like, I don't love yeah. violent but, media uh, that much. And it's yeah. just like, oh, this, this is violent as shit. And it's violent for good reasons, and I don't dispute that. Yeah, right? yeah no, no, that's right. That's right. If you, if, you, if you don't have the capacity or the desire to even watch people who deserve to, to have the shit kicked out of them, uh, kicked out of them, don't, don't, don't watch the show. But in terms of relevance... And it being a commentary on a political moment, boy, is it hard to, is it hard to top right now? What is, without giving spoilers, because I don't want to be spoilered, and I'm sure if you're listening, you don't want to be spoilered. Yeah, I no spoiler, no Watchmen spoilers, no Succession spoilers, promise. W what is the 30-second pitch on why the Watchmen is essential watching right now? If you care about and are aware of our long legacy of white supremacy in the United States, then you may already be interested. On top of that, the reality that is built is just alternate enough that you can remove yourself from some of the aspects and still get satisfying answers and insight into how white supremacy has made the United States what it is. I love alternate histories, and for that reason alone, I really want to make some time for it. Well, did you read the original comic? You don't have to. You don't have to. I, I, I didn't get into it, no. Yeah. Uh, so I think um, if you did read it, it's great, and it's very true to it in terms of it picks up where the comic left off. So it's it doesn't try to redo that. It, it's basically like, okay, so if that reality kept going, where would we be today? Mm. And it's very clear that it begins in 2019. And some historical events stay the same. Um, and uh, just as a, as a content warning, I'll just say, if you decide to pick it up, the very first episode begins with uh, the Tulsa race massacre of, of um, 1921, where Black Wall Street was, was truly, in reality, um, burned down to the ground. Uh, 300 people were killed um, in a day and a half and an entire community was burned to the ground and if you don't know about the tulsa race massacre of 1921 because it probably wasn't in your history books like it wasn't in mine nope. i was an adult before i knew that story Same. Uh, i let me just say i don't talk about like pedigree a lot but i have a degree in american studies with an emphasis on race and ethnicity from stanford university and i did not learn about tulsa until i was in my 40s Maybe Stanford is not all that it's cracked up to. We're gonna take a whole episode on that, and then we and then we'll get all then we'll get so much listener feedback. Uh, but anyway, but we digress. Yeah, all, the alternate history is just alternate enough to make you recognize where they are and 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 be rooted in it. Um, but yeah, content warning is that's the very opening of the very. There's no spoilers in me telling you that if if 
there were lots of folks who watched it and were like, I was not ready for that. So we'll just get you ready for that. And, and then maybe you'll have more of an appetite to continue it than I did because I was just a little bit shell-shocked at the end of it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a rough episode. And then also one of those things that's like an unflinching look at something that truly happened in our history. Wow. So, so where have we been the last few months? It, it's been a little while since we had a show out for you to listen to, but we've had a good reason for our break. Nicole, what have we, what have we been up to? We launched a product. It's true. We, we launched an app called Digamo. It's a Mac app, and it is available for you to go and grab right now to help you with your one-on-one -on -one meetings as a manager. You can go grab it at digamo, D-I-G-A-M-O dot app, A-P-P. Okay, so this has been really exciting. Um, Why? <laughs> because we, we took what we know works in the fundamental building block of organizational culture, that is the relationship between the manager and a direct report, and we distilled some values, sort of our aspirational selves, into a roadmap for good one-on-ones that um, really, instead of getting people, it's not a productivity app, but I want to call it a productivity app. It's not about tasks that are work-based tasks. What we did in looking at our la the landscape is we realized that a lot of management tools that are out there are about getting more work out of people like directly mm -hmm. right here's your task here's your task list we agree on it how are you completing these tasks it's tailorism in software the way we've diverged from that is we've said okay that's not all work is about work is also about how you're experiencing your team how you're receiving feedback how you're given praise how you know you're on the right track how you know you're not on the right track how you feel in terms of your burnout levels. Are you enthusiastic about a project or are you just gonna get it done? And very few managers, even seasoned ones, capture the story of your employment over the course of a year. So your arc over how did this year, or even this, this month, go for you as somebody who, who works here in this company or this organization, and I, as your manager, am responsible for knowing how you're experiencing work and if that's new to me, we try to make it really simple in this app and we say, talk to your direct reports about these things. These are the things you should be talking about. And you don't talk about all of them every single time, but what we've done is we've made it really easy for you to keep track of what your direct reports are telling you about where they're frustrated, where they're blocked, where they feel really good about work, what their sentiments are. You have a chance to interpret the sentiments so that you can get ahead of problems before they blow up and you go, wait a minute, you're quitting? Why? I didn't see it coming. The, uh, the aspiration for this app is that if you are using it regularly and you are going back and reviewing what you're putting in and you use some of our tools to, to tell you what you've, what you've told it, um, that you can really get a sense of how your retention's gonna go how you're going to promote people based on actual work, how you're going to reward them at the end of the year, how you're not going to let recency bias be the way you write those end of the year performance reviews because you can't remember anything that happened before September by the time December comes around. Who knows what happened January through August? So we do all of this. We, we created a receptacle for you 
Um, it's free, if, if you didn't catch that the first time. And I really would love for you to talk a little bit about some of the technical decisions we made in, um, in building it. So, so we had a bunch of decisions to make based on our unique position. And our position was based in two kind of concrete realities. The first constraint was we have to do our work based on values. We were just talking earlier about how, Nicole, you've had these, these periods in your life where you are inconvenient to people because you can't compromise on your values and your empathy to how decisions impact others. And I have had my career work in the same way. And so mm -hmm. if it's just us in the room and we don't have to account to anybody else, we are going to make those exact same decisions for ourselves and we're still going to be inconvenient. So we've got these convictions that we don't want to build software that is a tool for surveillance and we don't want to build software that is that makes it possible to leak information to other people that compromises their ability to to feel safe at work. And so privacy, confidentiality, lack of surveillance, very important to us. The other constraint is that we aren't rich, right? We don't have the ability to just pay for an entire team and we don't have the connections to go and talk to the Juicero investors and get a hundred million dollars <laughs> on an idea, right? And so we have the constraints of money, we have the constraints for our values. And so we, we sat down, we talked about this and I said, you know, Nicole, this is nuts, but maybe we should build this as a Mac app. And what we get from decentralizing the software so that it runs on a bunch of people's machines instead of on one centralized server is, one, a single person can build it. I don't need an entire team working alongside me to keep server infrastructure up and running uh, and to deal with the complexity of something that needs to scale according to usage. So we can just build this with one person and it can work no matter how many people are using it because we're using everybody's individual CPUs and local storage to do it. Now, because it's decentralized, that also means that we can't leak data. And so information that is stored on your machine stays on your machine and no one can see it unless you explicitly choose to share that information uh, because you think that there's going to be value to that. So as a result of those constraints, we ended up in this place where we, we did something that people don't do anymore. People build web apps because there's all of this scale advantage. If you get a bunch of people using your web app where you can make a bunch of money and that's neat, but it's not what we wanted to do. We wanted to build something that you could trust where you could get totally real with it, where you could have privacy, and in that privacy, feel confident that you could explore vulnerable topics with yourself and think about the vulnerable stuff that's going on on your team. I'm really proud of us. <laughs> there, I said it. I'm proud. I, 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 so there's this great quote, the absence of limitations is the enemy of art. And I think the limitations that we were working in forced us to come up with a better solution than we would have if we had all the money. Correct. And the thing that I think really became apparent immediately is that 
there were a lot of folks around us when we started doing this who were like, okay, great. And if we can scale to this many users and if we can deliver data insights up the ladder to executives and report and, and turn it into essentially a, SaaS, a bit of SaaS, you know, a SaaS product. And you and I both were like, and folks who work really closely with us on, at, at Via Consulting were like, yeah, but that's not what we teach people how to do. What we teach people how to do is get to know each other better, build stronger relationships, and fundamentally build trust because trust leads to psychological safety. Psychological safety leads to a better place to work and truly happier people who happen to also end up being more productive. And so instead of building this strange incentive inside it, which was like, it would be so easy to game or abuse or oh, yeah. like, if no. you turn it into a scoreboard system, it's really easy for people to start putting bullshit information into the product. And now we've created something that is a lever for doing harm or unjustly enriching people rather than actually centering the goal that we had, which is to create better managers and to create better relationships between managers and their reports. Right. And so it's your notebook as a manager. If you were to take handwritten notes and put them away in your in your backpack at the end of the day in your in your bag at the end of the day and you say this is where i keep all of my one-on-one -on -one notes you would never expect that somebody else would have a right to open that up and say oh what are you and danilo talking about oh he's been feeling anxious over this project oh well maybe he can't cut it which we've seen people abuse information like that over and over and over again all it's the, the time it's the bias of too much data used in the wrong way. And without context. That's the thing. When you put information about how people work into a piece of software like this, you are at the mercy of context that the inputter may or may not include. And so if we collected a bunch of information without context and then made that easily, cheaply, quickly distributable throughout an organization, we could be doing a lot of harm to people, and that's not what we started this project in order to do. Right, so now we're in this interesting um, environment where folks have said to us, well, you should go raise money on this. And we look at each other and the rest of the team looks at each other and we go, should we? Just because we potentially could, is that a should because what will the what will the pressures from an investor a, a new investor a set of uh, stakeholders put on this is very 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 valuable data we know this is incredibly valuable data and some data just shouldn't be for sale right and we are sort of at this crossroads and would love to hear from people who are listening about nifty solutions to putting this in the hands of more people it would be great if it could pay for the cost of its own development, but to continue to control the growth and the feature development and the user feedback. We're at we're at um, just over a thousand downloads now. That's right. Without without much uh, without much well without any marketing budget or, or or any sales team or anything like that. We put it on um, Twitter. It was, we let people know it existed, and people were excited that it existed according to our values and in the way that we built it. And a bunch of really great people helped us in the early days of development and gave us feedback on earlier iterations, which helped a ton because I think there is a group of people in tech, many of whom, if you listen to us, you probably follow them, the Marco Rogers, Mark Headlands, 
of the world who are deeply technical managers, uh, Sarah Milstein, you know, these folks are technical managers who care about some of the similar things we care about, especially around data privacy and don't scale just because you can. And so, you know, as we as we listen to the feedback from our users, we're realizing that we're onto something that's really helpful for managers and we don't want to fuck that up. <laughs> and sometimes massive influx of cash can fuck that up for your users. And we've seen it happen too many times in our industry to try and go down that road. So we're all ears for folks who have uh, interesting propositions about how we keep this thing going in a way that allows us to grow and build the way we want to grow and build. Now, if you are somebody who believes in one-on-ones and is curious about this tool and wants expert guidance on how to start integrating it into your daily work, Nicole, what, <laughs> what should you do? You should go to our website, digamo.app, as Danilo said, digamo, D-I-G-A-M-O dot app. And on it, if you scroll down, you will see uh, the ability to sign up for webinars, free, free, free webinars in January. Um, and we really welcome you scroll all the way down to the bottom of the page. We're holding them on January 23rd from 4 to 5 p.m. Pacific. And on January 29th from 8 to 9 a.m. Pacific. And we're hoping to accommodate lots of time zones with those two options. It's all going to be done on Zoom. You hit the register now button. You just give us your email address and it'll, Zoom will do the rest. Thank you, Zoom. And Nicole will give you free advice on how to be a great manager with one-on-ones. And you'll learn how to use our software. We're going we're gonna to demo the software. Danilo will be on the calls as well. So if you have technical questions about it, he will be there. We've got our good friend, Dr. Nicolas Bello, who will be on also, who does our user research. Um, and he's just an all-around great guy. And he will be there to glean insights from users and potential users. And we'll, we'll spend a lot of time doing Q&A as well as the demo to try and help you um, start 2020 off right with your with your teams and be a better manager than you probably already are. Yeah. So we got you covered. We got free gifts for you, free webinars, <laughs> free software, Mac only for the moment, sadly. But if you do use a Mac, like so many of our friends do, uh, we hope that you'll go and give that a look, give it a download, let us know what you think. Yes, we love, love, love user feedback. We've gotten some some great user feedback. I want to give a shout out to Rachel Hands, our, our friend, another another technical, another uh, engineering manager who she has given us some of the most valuable uh, insight into how she's using it for her team. And she's also reported that it's really changed how, how things have been going on her team for the better. And uh, I want to give her a shout out because she's just one of those one of those folks who always shows up for us. So Rachel Hands, happy holidays! Thank you. Well, I think I think that's our, our last show for 2019. Can you believe we survived this year? Hey, look, we still got another two weeks. So. <laughs> Shouldn't jinx. It. Why you te Why you gotta tempt the fates? <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you for hanging out with us, and hope you had a wonderful time. If you have questions for us to ask, uh, if you have questions to ask us about life at work and making that better, we hope that you'll reach out to us. 
Uh, if you visit impossibletomanage.com, we've got a link to a form there. You can ask us anything you'd like, and we'll see if we can't get that answered on a future version of this podcast. Again, we wish you the happiest of holidays, the most prosperous and hopefully better sleeping of New Year's, and uh, take care of yourselves. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>